This month, we lost a true brother in the Carlat family. Michael Pasternak was a frequent contributor to the journal, and he passed unexpectedly on July 3rd, 2023. He worked up to the very end, turning in his final piece on binge-eating disorder a few days before he died. He leaves behind two children, a loving extended family, and a private practice filled with patients whose lives were changed by his work. Mike began his career in academics, working alongside Mark Zimmerman at Brown University School of Medicine. I knew of his work back then because, even from that ivory tower, he was producing papers that were relevant to everyday practice. He was the first to show that antidepressants begin to separate from placebo by week two, not after four weeks like the conventional wisdom said at the time. Later, when the maker of Trintelix tried to use that feat to claim they had the fastest onset, Mike brought them down a notch. One paper he published in 2005 was unforgettable. The title was Pure Pasternak. Why isn't bupropion the most frequently prescribed antidepressant? Not the kind of title we're used to seeing in an academic tome like the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. But Michael had a passionate voice and a keen eye for where psychiatry was doing a disservice to their patients. In this case, by using SSRI's first line, medications that caused apathy, sexual dysfunction, sleep problems, weight gain, and a terrible withdrawal syndrome, instead of bupropion, which caused none of these. Mike suspected that this was due to marketing as well as to a myth that serotonin calmed anxiety while bupropion did the opposite. This, as he showed us in that paper, was a misunderstanding, for bupropion is just as effective at treating depression with anxious features as the SSRIs are. Bupropion does not treat anxiety disorders, but despite that linguistic overlap, there is little scientific rationale to say anxiety or phobic disorders are the same as anxious depression. His paper changed my practice, but we didn't agree on everything. Mike was a contrarian, and we often debated things for the report late into the night. After a while, I got to realize that he made me a better editor, and I started assigning him pieces where I knew he would take a different view from me. The result? He brought better balance to the journal as a whole. He wrote our first pieces on Spravato, Esketamine where he favored the rapid-acting antidepressant. He wrote about adult-onset ADHD, and I know that writing that paper changed his own view on it. He covered the cognitive benefits of Trintelix with an open mind and came out thinking we were giving the pharmaceutical industry too hard of a time on that one. More recently, he wrote about trichotillomania and a piece this summer which has gotten a lot of acclaim from our readers where he argued that combining two antidepressants rarely, if ever, works better than using just one. Mike was no ordinary doctor. In fact, he started out as a behavioral technician in psychiatric hospitals, working closely with patients, and that grounding is something he brings to the podcast you're about to hear. We recorded it in November of 2020, and it's one of my favorite episodes. Mike takes a problem that we see every day, depressed patients who have no motivation to do anything, and he comes up with a solution that speaks to the paradoxical web of self-defeat that is depression itself. Mike understood mental illness well, and I'm grateful for the wisdom he brings us. Where do you start 
when patients have no motivation to do anything? Michael Posternak has an answer in the first of our winner series on combining medication and psychotherapy. Welcome to the Carlette Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlette Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. In this month's Carlat Report, we feature an interview with Donna Sudak, a psychiatrist and psychotherapist who has written a book on how to integrate cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, into the med visit. The interview really lit up our editorial board, and after reading it, they've all been sharing ideas for how to do this kind of work. Michael Posternak thought of one that has changed my practice. He doesn't try to get patients to do more, but to do less. Here's what he said. I really liked the interview with Dr. Sudak and couldn't agree more that psychotherapy can be incorporated into med management visits. I actually think the the short amount of time we have with patients can be an advantage because it allows us to focus really quickly in on some goals. So what does that look like? It starts with an assessment. So, you know, when patients come in, we get a sense of what's going on in their lives and we'll assess for symptoms of depression and anxiety. We also want to assess their daily functioning. How's your sleep? How's your nutritional intake? Are you exercising at all? What's your social life like? Are you paying your bills, getting your tasks done around the house? That type of thing. So often when patients are struggling, they'll say things like, you know, I have so many things on my list that I need to get done. I plan on doing them, but I'm just unmotivated. And at the end of the day, I throw my hands up and I get nothing done. And so that really provides a perfect opportunity to intervene and say, okay, I think, you know, we can come up with maybe a different strategy. And let's try to have you leave the office today with a, with a specific plan or a specific goal. Often, if I throw it out to patients, uh, you know, what, what would you like to make for the goal? They'll come up with something like, you know, I want to start going for walks or I want to eat, eat less or lose weight. And the problem with those is they're very vague and they're very ambiguous and they rely on willpower and motivation. And those are in short supply when people are struggling with depression and anxiety. So what I'll do instead is I'll say, let's set something that's very specific and very concrete and very feasible. Let's start small. So the plan might be something like, I'll go for a walk tomorrow at 9 o'clock in the morning, and it'll be a 20-minute walk. You know, if they agree that's feasible, that will be the plan. Now, if we want to increase the likelihood that they'll be successful, we can add a layer of accountability. So what's accountability look like? If someone says, I'm going to go for a walk at 9 o'clock, I'll say, is there someone that you can call and say, hey, I'm going to go for a walk at 9 o'clock, and I'll text you as soon as I'm out the door. But if you don't hear from me by 9.05, give me a call back. So when you add that layer in, patients now know that uh, if they don't accomplish their task, uh, they're going to be accountable to someone. And that dramatically increases the success rate of getting that task done. And if patients don't have someone they feel comfortable reaching out to, I'll offer myself as that accountability person. I'll say, I'll tell you, I want to just leave me a message uh, after you go for a walk at 9.05 and you're out the door and just say, uh, leave me a message, say mission accomplished and I'll know what you mean. I can assure you that patients do not want to disappoint their doctor and they don't want to intrude on their doctor and have them call during the course of the day. I believe, I think over the years, the success rate of patients who have set the goal and been accountable to me with those tasks is maybe even 100%. So we set the concrete task, we set the goal, we start small. And then patients will invariably ask, you know, all right, after I get back from my walk, can I pay the bills? Can I make those phone calls? 
And my answer will often surprise patients because the answer will be, no, you can't. The reason is simple. The fundamental problem the patients are having is not that they can't get these things done. It's that they've been feeling overwhelmed. They have all these things they need to get done. They're all floating around in their mind. And, uh, and, and at the end of the day, they're just not getting them done. So they're living 24 hours a day with this constant sense of being paralyzed by what feels like enormous tasks that need to be accomplished. And so I want to do what I want to do in setting this goal is one, push the envelope and start moving forward. But two, I want to break the cycle of having this heavy feeling on their shoulders 24 hours a day. So once you've accomplished your goal, you're done for the day. Now, you're saying you have 27 uh, tasks you have to get done, but how many have you done in those the past month? And if you do one goal a day, one task a day, uh, in 27 days, you'll have achieved all 27 of them. So you've tried it your way. Let's try a very specific, concrete, and I want you to enjoy the feeling of having accomplished your tasks during the course of the day. Now, the other benefit of doing this approach is if you're not successful, which patients will often wonder whether they will be or not, they're not confident yet, by being very specific and very concrete, we'll be able to backtrack and say, if you're not successful, that's okay too, because we'll be able to figure out what went wrong. If your goal was to go at nine o'clock in the morning, were you planning to go at 8.45, at 8.59? And, and if you didn't go, when did things go off track? Was it because it was raining outside? Was it because you said, maybe I'll do it later in the day? Whatever the reason was, we'll now be able to strategize knowing what the obstacle was last time and uh, come up with a new plan for next time. So you'll either be successful or we'll come up with a better strategy next time. So the, the key principles, uh, setting a very specific concrete goal, one goal a day, make it very feasible, start small and get bigger over time. You can add accountability to that. And most importantly, really change it away from being a character weakness, a motivation issue, laziness, oppression problem, and changing the paradigm and making it a strategy problem. Doing that, I think, really can go a long way in helping people feel better, more confident about themselves, and giving the medications really the best chance to work. Michael's idea to accomplish just one thing a day but do it consistently is well-suited to the psychology of depression and to the way that the brain works. The brain needs positive experiences to get out of depression, but the brain doesn't care if you climb a mountain or clean out a desk drawer. There's only so much dopamine that can fire in there. What matters is doing something consistently, and that's what's missing in depression. People with depression might get started on a project and then get overwhelmed with thoughts and ruminations. I'll never finish this. I have so much more to do. It's not even worth it anyway. And then they give up. When it comes to treating depression, better to clean out one drawer in your kitchen each day consistently than to climb a mountain once a month. Yes, Michael's idea really helps patients stay focused on the consistency and he's trying to boost up the reward by having them spend more time appreciating their success. People with depression are quick to move away from that. You know, patients will often come in bent on telling me about how awful everything is and how much of a failure they are, and I'll try to turn that around and ask, I get that, now tell me the other side. What's one thing you accomplished this week, one thing that went well for you? 
If they do think of something, they'll quickly dismiss it. They'll talk about their success as if they had no role in it, like it was just something that happened to them rather than something they accomplished. And they'll discount their accomplishments with the old yes but. As in, the plumbing broke in my bathroom and I got it fixed, but it was just a disaster and it ruined my whole week. That sounds like a certain thought style we see in depression. Rumination. Rumination is a cycle of negative thinking that never gets anywhere. It often plays out like an argument in the patient's head. The depressed patient will try to cheer themselves up by focusing on something positive. Then they'll discount it with, yes, but, and it just goes back and forth like that. And you'll see a similar cycle of back and forth with, yes, but, in the office when you talk to the patient. So if you ever find yourself getting frustrated with that kind of negative style, just remember, that's what's going on in the patient's head all day, what you're experiencing in the office for just 20 minutes. And the endless, unproductive style of rumination, it's demoralizing to the patient. It's depressing in itself to have that kind of thought pattern. There's a version of CBT for rumination that Dr. Edward Watkins developed, and it uses this kind of behavioral activation, like Michael Posternak is talking about, to help patients break out of the cycle of ruminative thoughts. Yes, we interviewed Dr. Watkins in our June 2018 issue. It has a lot of good tips for working with depression. One cause of rumination is perfectionistic, compulsive tendencies and the kind of all-or-nothing thinking that goes along with that. Bear with me for a minute here because I'm going to describe a patient who is the opposite of your prototypical depressed patient. This is someone who does too much rather than too little. But the solution here is the same as Dr. Posternak proposed. You see, one cause of rumination is trying to do more than you can. You'll see this in patients with compulsive, perfectionistic tendencies. They'll spend their entire lives trying to multitask and squeeze more into an hour than they're capable of doing. They drive themselves like a harsh coach, and the inner dialogue is constantly critical. Oh, why didn't you do more? It's two o'clock and you've accomplished so little. If you hadn't got caught up in those Twitter feeds, you would have finished that presentation for work by now. It's like that expression, there's always room for one more, but it gets turned on you. You spend your whole life thinking you could have accomplished more than you did. Yes, yeah, so back to Dr. Watkins' theory. He proposes that this constant stream of negativity builds up gradually into a full depression. So to turn things around for these patients, he has them practice the art of doing one thing at a time and actually scheduling more time to complete things than they need. That way they can enjoy the ride and get it done. So whether your patient is doing nothing all day or doing too much all day, the solution's kind of similar. I'll bet that's not easy. A lot of these patients are tied to the workhorse of trying to do more than they can. It's like an addiction. You have to rearrange the goalposts for these patients. The goal here, after all, is to treat the depression, not to work eight days a week. This is interesting because it suggests that it's not just what patients do that matters, but how they experience it. So, Dr. Raken, you're saying that someone could be active, accomplishing things all the time, and it could still be a setup for depression if their overarching experience of all that activity is negative. 
Exactly. And there is some research to back that up. Working long hours, for example, like 11 hours a day, has been associated with double the risk of depression. And this point you're making about changing the patient's experience of what they do, that's why some people argue that behavioral activation, the psychotherapy, is not purely a behavioral therapy. There's a cognitive piece here, too. You're not just trying to get patients to do more. You're trying to exchange their experience of what they do so they can reconnect with what is rewarding in their daily life. That's what Dr. Pasternak is doing here. He knows it's not just a numbers game. It's not just about, okay, now you've succeeded at one thing, so let's move on to two and then three. He's not just trying to fill up a calendar with activity scheduling. He's trying to help people change the experience of what they do. You know, I've found this kind of behavioral activation works particularly well when patients start transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS. You see, TMS is a big investment of time and money. It can cost one to $2,000 just in co-pays, and the patient has to drive into the office five days a week to get it. So when patients take it on, they have a lot at stake. And here's what I tell them. There's evidence that TMS works better if you do something active before each session. So go out and walk in the woods for an hour before you get the treatment. And like Michael said, we have to settle on a time and place for that walk. Normally, it's hard to get patients to do that kind of thing, but there's a lot at stake when they're starting TMS. I mean, when they're investing all that time and money into it, they have a little more motivation to make sure that it works. You know, there's more truth to what you're saying than you might imagine. What do you mean? Well, on the one hand, of course patients are going to get more out of their treatment, whether it's medication or TMS, if they combine it with behavioral activation. But there is also research showing that TMS does work better when patients are experiencing positive thoughts rather than negative ones while the magnet is running. And so hopefully the things you're getting them to do before they go to the magnet, and walking in the woods is a great example of that, will create those positive thoughts. Well, that sounds interesting. I mean, we know this about the oldest psychotropic medication in the book, alcohol. Alcohol has different effects on mood, depending on whether you're alone or with people, whether you're happy or sad when you drink. So why not TMS? But one thing at a time for now. We'll have to get into that TMS research later. Now it's time for the word of the day. Wait, that's my line. And now for the word of the day. Delirium musitans. Musitans, of course, is the Latin word for muttering. And delirium musitans is a severe form of delirium where the patient mutters with repetitive, slurred, nonsensical speech. It's also called muttering delirium. In this state, movements are reduced to tossing and turning, trembling, and muscle twitches. Like any delirium, delirium muscitans is typically caused by a medical illness, and it's often described as part of typhoid fever, where it's sometimes called the typhoid state. Here, patients pick at their bedclothes and at imaginary objects while they mutter. In Shakespeare's Henry V, a tavern hostess describes Falstaff's last moments before his death and how he babbled, fumbled with his sheets, and played with imaginary flowers with his fingers 
It's an apt description of delirium musitans. For after I saw him fumble with the sheets and play with flowers and smile upon his fingers' end, I knew there was but one way. For his nose was as sharp as a pen, and he babbled of green fields. Thank you to Anna Jane Rogers for her reading from Henry V. Click on the link in the episode notes to earn CME for this podcast. There's only two questions, and we think you can get them. Here's the first one. 1. True or false? In Dr. Postanak's view, patients are more likely to stick with behavioral assignments when they are accountable to someone else, as long as that person is not the psychiatrist. Using the psychiatrist to hold patients accountable fosters dependency and distorts the therapeutic relationship. We close not with a study of the day, but with another loss. Sinead O'Connor died last week at the age of 56. The cause of death is still unknown, but so is the force that drove her life. Sinead broke boundaries at every step, and she was dismissed as having mental illness with every boundary she broke. But if refusing to conform to the hairstyle of your gender of birth is a mental illness, we got a long way to go. And if calling out the Pope on Saturday Night Live for covering up child sexual abuse is mental illness, we have a long way to go. And if refusing to sing the national anthem because you disagree with the war in the Middle East is a mental illness, we have a long way to go. Sinead did seek psychiatric help throughout her life and was variously diagnosed with bipolar II, complex PTSD, and hormonal dysregulation all diagnoses that she variously agreed with and variously refuted. But, as we're going to learn in an upcoming episode, it's not the patient that fails when our diagnosis or treatment doesn't fit. It is us. Thank you, Michael, and thank you, Sinead, for bringing us all a little further in that journey. We still have a long way to go. Next week, we pick up again with updates from the International Bipolar Conference, where we run into Robert Post, former chief of the National Institute of Mental Health, and learn what are his top three meds for bipolar disorder. Got questions? Got ideas? Write us at asktheeditor at thecarlatreport.com. And thank you for being part of the Carlat family. <laughs>